So by the time I got ready to get sober, I didn't know I was ready yet, but it happened to me. Uh, I was one of those people who in the rooms would say, how do you know when you're done drinking? And people all had the same answer. You'll know. And I thought that was chicken shit answer, but in the end, that turned out to be the only answer. Yeah. Welcome to the Recovery Edge Cast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. I'm pleased to have Dan G today with us. Hey Dan, how are you? Hey Alfredo. I think we met, if I remember correctly, at the uh, at Third and Terry, um, at the the seven thirty yeah. p.m. back when they used to have them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Years ago now. I know. Five years or six ago. years ago. <laughs> yeah, years ago now. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, so why don't you start us off with your sobriety date in your home group? All right. Give me one second, and I'll get my cat bed, and then we won't have to worry about him. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm Dan Gillum. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, my home groups uh, keep coming back Friday night, 730. It's a hybrid meeting, Zoom and otherwise. And my sobriety date's August 22nd, 1989. The best and worst day of my life. <laughs> so <laughs> how many years time. is that now? That's 32. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. Half my life. I'm I'm 62. <clears throat> well, congratulations so I, on 32. So I, <laughs> thank you. Screwed up the first half, and God has redeemed the second half so far. So I'm grateful. That's great. And you have a you have a cat, right? Just, I do. Just Toulouse. one right now. Yes. What's uh What's your kitty's name? Toulouse. Toulouse. As in Toulouse-Lautrec, the Impressionist French artist. Oh, that's cool. And um, he's uh, he's pretty up there right now, isn't he? Not really, but he's got a terminal thing. So Yeah? Yeah, we're just celebrating the days that he has. That's nice. Right now. Which is stressful, but yeah, I'm dealing with it. There's a lot of stressful right now. There is, huh? Yeah, it's floating in the air. You're also uh, a musician. Oh, uh, yeah. You're a musician and I'll, artist, uh, really. Yeah. I'll go into that a little bit. Okay. I don't want to miss out. I want to give you a plug, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you. you got That's some stuff a, on Spotify. <laughs> big part of my story. Yeah, I got a lot of music on Spotify and I have my own YouTube channel as well. Cool. All right. Well, how you feeling? You feel warmed up? Want me to go? Yeah, I'm yeah, ready. Floor's all yours. Go for it. Okay. Thanks, Alfredo. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a lot of us, uh, I started my, my drinking when I was a, a early teenager uh, up until then, I'd been in a religious home where there was no alcohol. And uh, although I heard stories that uh, there were alcoholics 
that had died in my family. So I had some sense that it was a family thing, but, uh, you know, I wasn't thinking about that when I picked up a drink and I was, uh, I was a drunk from the beginning. It didn't take me any time to warm up. I think about age 14, I had my first bottle of wine, which, you know, they called wine, but <laughs> it was, I don't know, Boone's Farm. Nice. And uh, got into all kinds of trouble, and real early I just, you know, I made trades. I, I, I traded away first-year trumpet uh, for my drinking I, in the band. I traded away uh, athletics, basketball, basketball, and baseball. Traded away school, friendships, freedom. Started running away from home because things were bad there, and uh, I was not going to comply. Um, so I started running away and getting locked up. I had uh, several encounters with cops and ended up in jail one time. Uh, for six months, when I was 16, I was sent to a juvenile prison and in hopes of straightening me out. But uh, what happened was I came out with more ideas of how to be uh, a criminal and a, and a, a drunk. And uh, so from 16, 17, 18, I, I was homeless. I lived, I hitchhiked all over the continent. Uh, in search of more and more opportunities to get drunk and high. I have little recollection of those years because I was a blackout drinker. In fact, I didn't really think the drinking was complete until I blacked out. I just thought that was part of the picture. So regular occurrence for me. At age 18, I was living under a bridge in Tampa, Florida, I was waiting at 7 a.m. for the liquor store to open. And a lot of people have a hard time identifying with being an alcoholic, particularly with the story. They go, well, I've never slept under a bridge and drank uh, booze with the bag still on the bottle. But that's where I was at uh, 17, 18. And I knew I was in trouble. I knew that uh, I was going down. But it led me to a, a spiritual awakening that I had where I reverted back to childhood teachings about God and ended up uh, very active in my church, which is not unusual for people like us. We have spiritual awakenings uh, on the tail end of alcoholism, and that's where we go. And at that time, nobody was sending me anywhere else, so I went head first into church. And uh, people there saw potential in me, even though I had not achieved what I would consider full-time sobriety, yet they saw potential and sent me to Bible college. I got a GED, and I did well there. Uh, you know, I shone, um, and I had a story to tell. It was different than everybody else's that was at Bible college. And I had lots of good opportunities. I learned how to serve. I learned how to pray, you know, and I, I learned how to study. A lot of good things happened during that time, but I had alcoholism tickling the back of my brain the whole time. 
So it was kind of a white knuckling experience for me into my first two years of being a pastor, a youth pastor at a large church in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is where I ended up getting sober. It's also where I was born while my dad was in school at the same college. Uh, two years in, uh, I started drinking and uh, got married about the same time. And I remember thinking, I need to get married so that I cannot drink. <laughs> wow. <How's that> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not at all. Yeah, that didn't work out. And the poor, the, the poor girl never had a chance. And, and I didn't, we didn't either. I didn't know what was going on. Um, I went straight downhill from there. I got fired from my first ministry after, uh, while I was in treatment, they didn't even let me finish my 30 days. They called a meeting of everybody and asked me to explain myself, you know, and I'm still detoxing. I'm shaking like a leaf, but I'd started smoking again and cussing and I was not the same guy. Just didn't take long for me to revert back to street level alcoholism and living. Um, so, uh, that was my first taste of Alcoholics Anonymous in, uh, 1986 when I went to my, you know, my first meeting while in treatment. Uh, and, and the attitude I had at that first meeting, uh, I carried with me for four more years that, Hey, yeah, we all have a problem and you all need to work the 12 steps. <laughs> I just didn't see that they applied to me in part because I had religious training. I thought I knew something about God. I mean, hell, I had a piece of paper that said I knew something about God, uh, a degree. And, uh, so I, you know, without going into details, I just spent four more years in and out of AA treatment. I got hired and fired by two more churches during that time, different denominations. So by the time I got ready to get sober, I didn't know I was ready yet, but it happened to me. Uh, I was one of those people who in the rooms would say, how do you know when you're done drinking? And people all had the same answer. You'll know. And I thought that was chicken shit answer. But in the end that turned out to be the only answer. Yeah. If alcohol did its job and alcoholism in me did its job. There would come a time when I would be done. And that day came and I was in rehab when it was my fourth time in treatment when it happened. And I got kicked out the next day for not for breaking rules, being a rebel, not thinking things applied to me. Uh, I remember when they called me in and said, "We're going to let you go. You're a uh, you're being a detriment to the people that are trying to get sober here." I just uh, I knew I was screwed at that point. Mm -hmm. Up until then, I knew I had a problem. I knew I couldn't handle alcohol. But I didn't really know I was screwed until that point because I, well, it was at that time that I finally understood that phrase pitiful and what is it? pitiful and help me out, Alfredo. Pitiful. Demoralizing. Yeah. Huh? I was going to say hopeless, maybe. There, there, there's a three word line that describes pitiful, 
demoralizing. Uh, I'm having a blank right now. Oh, yeah. Me too, then. But it basically basically meant, I mean, I knew that I was screwed. And uh, I'm sitting on the front steps of the hospital, and I had had a third-step experience. Actually, another first and second experience. I, I knew that I was screwed, which is step one. I knew that I couldn't help myself, which is step two. And I needed God. And step three, uh, I sat out there and said, God, I, I'm out of ideas on how to help you get me sober. I heard myself say that. And since I've said it, many people laugh when I've said it. But I was dead serious. I really believed that God was like a secondary player in my sobriety. But from that day on, I knew God had to do it. And I looked at my track record and I had tried everything I knew. Um, and none of it had worked. I, could, I couldn't. I was one of those who couldn't stay sober hmm. for very long. And I had that big book with the phone numbers in it that you get when you're in treatment. They send you out to meetings and say, get phone numbers. And my front and back cover of my big book, which I had read but not much more, was filled with phone numbers. And I called called a guy. And he showed me service work. He dropped what he was doing, came over, picked me up from the hospital, took me to a meeting. And at that meeting, I asked this guy to be my sponsor. He wasn't anything special. He just was sober every time I saw him. And he always had friends, and he was laughing in meetings. He always drove the same car. (laughs) He had the same job. Mm -hmm. Completely opposite of what my life looked like. Mm. And little did I know, but I asked the right guy. He took me that day. We started going through the steps. Within a couple of months, I was through my fourth and fifth step, um, where I finally saw my role in in what was making me miserable. You know, I saw my resentments. I, I saw my fears. I saw my sex conduct and otherwise. I it was a veil was lifted and I saw the truth about myself. And at the same time I experienced what the, one of the fifth step promises says, many of us feel like the drink problem has been solved. And I went, I remember my first meeting after doing my fifth step, I felt really different. I, I, for one thing, I, I didn't feel like a visitor anymore and I wasn't somebody who was just showing up and, Hating everybody, mm. trying to pick up chicks. <laughs> <laughs> um, I felt like a member. I felt like I had earned that chair. I felt like nobody could ever take it from me. And uh, 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 most importantly, I felt like the obsession uh, to drink had been lifted. And it's nice to have a point in time in my own personal history where I can point back and say this is the point when I experienced uh, sobriety. Um, <clears throat> anyway, that same sponsor marched me through the rest of the steps over the next year, part of which included going to a maximum security prison every Saturday morning to carry a meeting. Mm-hmm. So in my sobriety experience, I thought 
12 step meant, you know, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we carried meetings into institutions <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because that, that's what my experience was. And I got hooked on it in part because, you know, I had been in, I had been institutionalized myself. I was, I was not uncomfortable with, um, doors clanging shut and, uh, meeting people who committed violent crimes. I just, I knew what my purpose was to just show up and, and, uh, show them sobriety in, in, in some, on some skin, show them a person who was actually doing this thing. As a result, man, over 30 years, 32 years now, uh, everywhere I've lived, I've been a part of an institution meeting and it's been jails, Hospitals, halfway houses, mental hospitals. Well, that was one of my favorite ones in Virginia. Hmm. Every every Tuesday night in Williamsburg, Virginia, I went to Eastern State Hospital, and there were 30 people down in the room eating coffee and donuts. Only took me a couple of weeks to figure out that the hospital was sending everybody down there. Hmm. <laughs> so I... Half the room were alcoholics and the other half were just fucking crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, what's funny is that, uh, we all kind of acted the same. There were, you know, there was a common sanity, insanity that we were experiencing. And anyway, we, we went through the book there. We carried the message to those that wanted it. And, And I got to see that AA is for anybody who, thinks they have a drinking problem, uh, they can show up no matter what other issues they have. Mm. And, um, so institutions have been a big part of my sobriety, uh, carrying the message and, and I'm alive and well and have benefited in many, many ways because of that fact. I have no doubt. Uh, a big part of my journey back to the steps was uh, the amends process uh, eight and nine you know eight was easy I thought all the all the resentments I had when I was first writing the fourth step well, these are all the people that have screwed me and then when I by the time you get to step eight no these are all the people I owe amends to mm. <laughs> for my part you know their part wasn't important anymore it was my part that I need to be aware of so over two years, my first two years sober, I was pretty diligent about making amends, and I had I had a lot. I had I had three churches worth of people, you know, that I had borrowed money from, lied to, screwed over in one way or another, or just disappointed them by being a drunk when I was supposed to be their pastor. Hmm. Uh, also, one of the churches I had uh, uh, siphoned off some money up to about five grand you know, is what I could figure out. When I got to that amends pretty early, I I remember when I made my eight-step list, I kind of did them opposite of how I thought my sponsor was going to go through. I thought he was going to start at the top, whatever was number one, let's start there. So I put my more, what I considered benign, amends at the top and down at the bottom were <laughs> stole money from a church. Mm. 
And man, he flipped that list upside down and I had to do my hard ones first, which was fantastic because hmm. that made all the rest of them go easier. And, uh, lest I forget, I need to point out the line in the book that says nine out of 10 times the unexpected happens when we're making amends. It's in that part of the book. Mm-hmm. And that's my story. We all expect we're going to get negative feedback when we go or worse. When we go to tell people, Hey, I screwed you over. What can I do to make it right? But my experience is nine times out of 10 people were like, man, I'm just glad you're sober. You can make amends to me by staying sober. I had more than one person say that. Mm. But I owed the church money, and my sponsor said, was the pastor, because I wasn't the senior pastor at that first church, he said, was was he mad? Was he really upset with you? And I'm like, well, first of all, he, he doesn't know about the money. But, yeah, he was mad about everything else. Mm. He said, do you think he would be likely to... Uh, you confess to him that you stole some money that he'd be likely to turn you into the authorities and I said there's a good chance and we looked at that part of the book that said you know we we shouldn't shy away uh, from amends even if we think we might go to jail but it says we're not going to have much luck paying off our debts if we can't work and so my sponsor we looked at both of those he said, I tell you what, I want your amends to be. I want you to buy big books for newcomers the rest of your life. Mm. <laughs> I said, okay, that seemed like such a daunting task, but a whole lot easier. For for one thing, I didn't have $5,000, and then another, I just didn't. I was following my sponsor's guidance, and I'm grateful that I did. Uh, and sometime around 20 years sober, I just kind of stopped and counted, generalized, how many book, big books have you bought for newcomers over the years? And then I came up with about $5,000 worth. It was really something because, you know, I just went to meetings with a $5 bill in my pocket expecting to buy a big book to somebody that needed one. And a lot of times I did. And I didn't tell anybody about it. That was that was important, that it not be something that I could pat myself on the back over. I'm making amends here. I'm not getting kudos. But that was a big part of my sobriety, turning that corner by taking responsibility for my actions, trusting God for the outcome. It's another big uh, benefit of the ninth step is that I had more spiritual experience because I was forced to trust God. When, when, you, when you're sitting in the driveway, you got your notes written down, you know what you're going to say, but you've got to get out of your car and go up and knock on the door. There's a gap there where you have to trust God because you do not have what it takes to do that. Mm. And over and over and over, I trusted God with that experience, got the same result. And as, as a result of that, I, I built up, uh, w- without realizing it, I, I just built up a, so- a solid faith uh, foundation. And it's gone with me for 32 years now. 
about two years sober, I moved back to Virginia because I had more amends to make. I had done a lot of screwing up down there and I, I needed to be sober around my family and that's where they live. And so I got a lot more of that work done there. But during that, during that time, you know, I started asked a question like a lot of us do, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I, I just got this thought, what do you want to do? What do you like to do? What do you, what do you, what's your dream? And I kind of made a bucket list. Um, and I wanted to be a professional musician. I wanted to record my own music. I, I wanted to learn how to paint. You know, I wanted to travel sober. I, I wanted to have a, a, a marriage sober. Uh, I wanted to um, go to Europe sober. Um, I wanted to, um, there was, there was, or, oh, I wanted to write. I wanted to uh, get a book published. And by the time I was 20 years sober, I had clicked off, checked off uh, everything on my bucket list. Wow. I had recorded, I had recorded ten albums of original music. I painted hundreds of paintings, many of which I'd sold through the internet all over the world. I'd written one book and had it published, and uh, would later write a second one. And uh, just all that good stuff rolled out of me because I wasn't drinking and I trusted God, and I was my life's purpose was to help grow. All those other things were secondary, but they were, they were what, who I was, what I wanted to be and do. And they gave me opportunity to help grow. So I became, and I moved a lot. I, I just moved every two years because I wanted a new challenge. I was a gypsy at heart ever since I was 14. I've been on the go and I, uh, I just became a sober gypsy and every two years I'd get a new community, have some new challenges, make, make some new friends and, and then go on to the next place. Uh, until I got to Longmont uh, nine years ago. It was the second time I moved here. Well, first of all, I, I forgot one. I wanted to be a sober pastor as well. So in my 32 years, I, God's given me opportunities to be a sober minister in three denominations. Uh, so I'm even Stephen on that one. You know, I got fired from three. I, I did three in sobriety. And I, as I was leaving the third ministry, uh, which was here in Longmont, um, 05 to 07, I was the minister of meditation and prayer and recovery. They sent all the drunks to me mm -hmm. at, a, at a mega church uh, here in Longmont. And after two years of it, I, I just, I, I continued to stay active in AA. I was doing institution meetings, uh, here in addition, my, my job wasn't my sobriety. My AA was my sobriety. My ministry was my job, even though you know, we know that God, we have a new employer. God was my employer. But after two years, it just became real clear to me that my role as a professional pastor was over. I, w I was done working 
in the church trying to find a way to fit when I didn't really fit. I had gotten my spirituality uh, and sobriety through the 12 steps. Same God, same power, but a different path. And I found it very difficult to get all in with the path that I was pitching when it wasn't the path that I was living. Hmm. And it, it uh, seemed God kind of made it clear to me, your ministry from now till whenever is working with drunks and creating beauty. That was my other one. So I continued to paint, write, make music. Uh, so the last, uh, you know, since 07, so 13 years. My math's not that good. I need to jump ahead and tell y'all that uh, nine years ago, I got sick with sepsis and almost died. I was in Cincinnati doing an institution meeting, sponsoring a bunch of guys, heavily involved in my own recovery and the recovery of others. But I was being asked to lead meditation retreats for men in recovery around the country. A couple of years. Very satisfying. Um, and I got sick at a monastery that had 100-year-old uh, pipes, I, I got a room that had spray mist heat and I breathed it in for three days and I got home and thought I had the flu, was in bed for a week and woke up one day and couldn't get out of bed. Had to call 911. They came to got me. By the time I got to the hospital, they, they told me my lungs and kidneys were shutting down and that they were going to have to put me on a ventilator. And I was so sick. I had 105 fever. I was I couldn't see straight. I, I couldn't really put my finger on what was happening to me. But I signed the paper, and a month later, I came out of uh, the induced coma with all kinds of new problems that I would discover in the next years to come. Hmm. But I was alive. I had survived, and my family was there. They And many, many people had come through praying for me. And I was told when I first woke up that I had almost died, and I don't remember saying it, but somebody told me that I said, I would have been good with that. I've had a good life. Mm. <laughs> and, I, and I know that's because I was aware of my sobriety and God, the miracle of God working in my life. And apparently God had done another miracle and wanted me to, to hang around. I've had an uphill climb the last nine years. I've, uh, I'm a mental health patient now. I've been diagnosed with brain injury and PTSD and uh, chronic fatigue, anxiety disorder. It's a long list. I don't sleep well. I don't eat well. I don't socialize well. But, you know, I mean, the same things that I did before I got sick, I've been doing since I got sick. I walk every morning. I pray and meditate. I journal. I try to help a drunk. I catch a meeting when I can. The same path has carried me through these last nine years, even though it has felt like it's all been up a down escalator. I feel like the work that I do every day just to take care of myself 
are steps that takes a lot of energy and there's some movement, but the escalator is moving down. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. Mm. So I really haven't, even though I've been seen by a lot of doctors, they really just don't have any um, solution for people who experience what I'm experiencing. Uh, there, there's just not a lot of medical healing uh, advice for people with brain injury or even people with PTSD. Uh, doctors want to throw medication at you. Um, I could be taking whatever I wanted. <laughs> yeah. If I said I was in pain, I could get a script for that. If I said I was anxious, I could get a script for that. I say those things, but my doctors know that I'm a recovering alcoholic. And so uh, I don't take those things. I've, uh, I'm still sober. And it's a miracle uh, yeah. that most people don't don't really know when they meet me. They don't they don't know that uh, they know. Oh, wow, you've been sober a long time. Oh man, you look great. You're, you're a happy guy. I like hanging out with you. These are wonderful things to hear. Mm-hmm. And I thank them and I agree with them. But it's not my whole day. A lot of my day is uh, is a struggle. But I, I I'm not alone, man. I mean, I, I, this recovering from this uh, septic shock. And by the way, I did write a book about it, septic shock and all. I wrote a book about my experience in the coma. Yeah. And I wrote, I wrote about my um, all the trauma that I experienced in life because I was told that if I could write it out, that somehow it might get better, and I did. So I wrote it all out, but just didn't really do what they they hoped it would but nevertheless um, my stories helped a lot of people um, who struggle after sepsis with the things that I struggle with it's a common pool of symptoms that millions of people experience I didn't know that nine years ago I thought I was alone and I felt very alone but I've since discovered online many many groups of people who are just coming out of comas after being septic and they're wondering what happened to me, what can I expect? And I've been helpful. I've been able to weigh in on many, many people's lives that I don't know just because I need to help somebody. I'm on the phone here, mom. And that, uh, that rule governs my life, whether I feel like it or not. It's a gift. Hmm. So, uh, there's, you know, you can't cover 32 years in half an hour. And so <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I touch on, on highlights and, and maybe you have a couple of questions. Yeah. Something you'd like to hear more of. Um, you know, what would, what would that be? Like early on, you talked about, um, actually living under a bridge. And as you said, not many, of us experience that, but we use it as an example, you know, it's kind of like the goal line, like, eh, at least I'm not there. Yeah. It's the low bar, right? Yeah. What was that like living under a bridge and how long did well, you Well, at the time, at the time I didn't, I, you know, I, 
I don't include this in my story very often, but I'll, I'll say it here. It's, it's nothing I'm ashamed of, something I've dealt with. But at the time, I was living as a street prostitute. I, I was uh, sleeping under the bridge, but um, I was going to, to bars uh, and getting paid for sexual favors. Mm-hmm. And uh, six months of that, it wasn't the bridge that drove me down. It wasn't where I was sleeping. It was the the moral deflation. Yeah, not being able to stand myself. Uh, also, the every night blackout drinking, and the next day dealing with it. What did I do? What happened? Um, pitiful and immoral. Pitiful demoralization. Pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. There it is. <laughs> yeah. My oh, brain found it. For. Yeah, yeah. Pitiful and incomprehensible. Nobody knows what that means until they hit it. And then you go, oh, okay, that means I'm fucked. Mm. So my, I had my first experience of that uh, under the bridge. But I'll tell you what it was like. I'd stumble back to the bridge. I had, I didn't have, it was Florida. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a sleeping bag. I had, I had a guitar that somehow I held on to. Mm-hmm. And uh, somehow it didn't get stolen from me. But I, every night when I would, I wasn't the only one, uh, you know, traversing bridges. Yeah. I was awakened every night in the middle of the night by somebody trying to steal from me, to somebody trying to sexually molest me. I was, you know, 17, 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what happened was I got... Uh, I, I learned to take care of myself and I'd never really been a, I, I'd always been a runner, not a fighter, a, a lover, not a fighter. I talk your way out of shit, not fight your way out of things. Yeah. Kind of guy. But, uh, that experience changed me. And, um, also that also contributed to my sense of demoralization because I, I didn't like being like that. But it was survival. I became a survivor. And you know, I'll I'll just say this. That and all my experiences, um, God has redeemed and used to make me more compassionate uh, to other people. I I can relate to a lot of hardship because I've had a lot of it. I've been divorced twice. My second marriage in sobriety lasted 12 years and 10 of it was really good. But after 10 years, she stopped working the program and decided she liked somebody else's company rather than mine. And so our marriage ended. But even then I'm like, Hey, I got 12 years of marriage under my belt. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That was a success story for me, even though it ended Mm -hmm. and 10 of it was good. I was like, all right. (laughs) <laughs> but I've been divorced twice. I've been through bankruptcy. I've, I've been audited by the IRS twice. I've had friends uh, murdered. I've had friends die from drug overdose. I've had friends shoot themselves in the head. Um, friends die in car accidents. I mean, it's just a, it's a, the longer you live, the more people you know that do those things. Mm. And when your life is filled with alcoholics and drug addicts, that rate goes up. You know more people like that. 
Um, and I've had several near death experiences, not just the one in the hospital. I've had a couple other, I had a, ch- a random choking experience that I almost died from. Wow. And I, in the last seconds of consciousness, I had this thought, throw yourself against something, you know, give yourself a Heimlich. And, and, and it worked. I threw myself up some stairs, right? I mean, I was seeing black around the edges. I was about to pass out and die. Uh, cause I had a chip blocking my airway, a, a potato chip. Oh man. And I couldn't get air in or out. And I was struggling, and within 30 seconds, I was at the end. And with just seconds to spare, I threw myself up some stairs in my apartment, and that chip came flying out. Wow. And that could have been it for me. But, again, one more time, God said, no, not yet. (laughs) That is really random, though. Isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I also almost died from diabetes, which I haven't talked about much. But when I when my kidneys and lungs shut down when I was on the ventilator, my so did my uh, pancreas. Hmm. Is that the one that's for diabetes? Yeah, yeah, huh? yeah. And it never it never fully restarted. And so uh, three or four years ago, I had a diabetic. Um, shock experience and almost died. Didn't even know I had diabetes. Um, but a doctor saved my life. Uh, and, and I, um, so I'm di- I'm diabetic now too. <laughs> you know, what don't I have? I don't have cancer. <laughs> You're alive. But I'm alive, man. And, uh, I can count on more than two hands the number of people whose lives God has touched for me uh, the last nine years. So I know it's not an accident. Yeah. And uh, you and I know that you are one of those people. Yeah, certainly. And uh, I'm one of the people you God has touched through you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it works both ways. Yeah. It's, um, it's, and as I, as I finish up here and I look back on my life at the end of this this story that's got it's patchwork. I know I didn't, didn't tell everything, but it makes all of the stress and anxiety of the modern world problems pale in comparison. Mm. Because I believe with my whole heart that no matter what happens, the most significant event in my life is I got sober and became an asset on this planet. I agree. Uh, you, yeah. know, you know, and so no matter what happens, I'm, I'm, I'm winning. I, I'm on the winning team. And, uh, I've been fortunate, man. I haven't gotten sick the last couple of years. I know some people who have all kinds of, uh, it's just a bunch of crap we're waiting through right now. And that's all we need. Yeah. But, but God is in charge. Um, I know, I, I know that know how to turn over. I know that um, when my mom was on the ventilator from COVID, I was able to have conversations with you about it and be comforted, you know, knowing that she's not the first one to go through this and that she can make it out. And she exactly. Did. That, 
that's amazing that she did. It is amazing because I know it's a, it's sad to say, but I know several who didn't make it. You know, it's crazy yes. how this. Uh, well, the statistics are I, the statistics around ventilators, which I didn't know. Uh, the doctors had my family told me the doctors had written me off. They were they were waiting for me to die because oh, yeah. I was just too I was too sick. But I didn't die, and 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 then since then I've learned that the statistics of people who survive once they're put on a ventilator is only thirteen percent. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really so a coin flip. Your mom, and, and even then, it's a coin flip. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so your mom and I are miracles, man. Glad we share that. Yeah. Now uh, another question here. Um, I want to talk about your your creativity. Um, a lot yeah, of, a sure. Lot of, a lot of people kind of feel like they need um, chemicals to kind of uh, charge their creativity, but you have a different source for it. You're very creative: music, writing, and painting. Um, yes, I had I had that. I remember thinking when I was early in sobriety because I had uh, I had I'd been a songwriter since I picked up the guitar around 15. Uh, I just wasn't any. I, you know, anyway, it wasn't as good as later when I had lots of time to, to work on it. But I remember having that, and I've heard many people express concern about, I'm an artist, man. If I get sober, I'm going to lose that. Mm-hmm. And my experience is no, no, many other doors and windows of creative energy uh, await, uh, awaited me. I, I found much more inspiration in sobriety than I ever found when I was drinking. So it's the opposite. It's uh, Of course, we also think there's no way I'm going to be happy if I get sober. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to be a miserable drunk that doesn't drink. But Mm -hmm. then we find out that's not true either. Right. When we, we experience true happiness for the first time that comes from within as opposed to external sources. She makes me happy. The car makes me happy. My job makes me happy. Yeah, maybe, maybe not, but I'm happy from an internal source. Yeah. I think that's the bigger issue. Now, do you have a piece of advice that was given to you that kind of had a lasting impact through your recovery? Through these 32 years? Yeah. About a million, but I maybe can remember two or three right now. But the, yeah. the first, the first one that really impacted me, I I realized that when I went to AA before I was sober, that nobody was trying to talk me out of drinking. Nobody was trying to talk me into sobriety. They already knew that I had to finish, and so one of the most the first impactful things that I heard in AA was that, that phrase, you'll, you'll know when you're done. Um, and they, there were guys who gave me a $5 bill after a meeting and said, I think you need to drink some more. And and I thought, you gotta be kidding. That's, that's, that's your advice. And they go, well, you're not listening to anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's crazy. And, And they were, they were right. And uh, many times I did. I, you know, I, I said, "Fuck it, fuck you," and I went and got drunk. 
<laughs> and I, I needed, I needed every one of those drunks, you know, to get sober. I, I wouldn't take, I wouldn't take back any of them because then that would mean that I still had one ahead of me. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was a huge one. Another one was, uh, I learned not in the meetings, but from men and the, the recovering men that were in my life, I learned how to have a sense of humor about myself and not take myself so seriously. Uh, and then I read that story in the book about rule 62, you know, we don't take ourselves too seriously. Mm. It's important. You know, we, that got me over a lot of humps mm. in sobriety. Uh, I've also learned a ton about, uh, well, I don't know if it was, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll end with, with this third one that, that sticks with me. This, the summation of the 12 steps that is our program uh, has stuck with me. Whenever I hit something I, I, that's causing me a problem of some sort, I remember trust God, clean house, and help others. And I go, which one do I need to do right now? Mm. And uh, sometimes it's all three. Mm. But a lot of times it's just, I need to just pick up the phone and call somebody, whether you know, who's going to help who doesn't matter. I just need to, mm -hmm. to not be alone with myself in this moment. But uh, those are powerful words. Trust God, clean house, help others. Uh, unfortunately, uh, like you, I, I've met many, many and continue to meet many who want to get sober on just trust God mm. or just trust God and help others which was my experience as a pastor before I got sober. Uh, that was my program, trust God and help others. But if you're an alcoholic, you're a dead man on that program. <laughs> yeah. Because cleaning house is such a significant piece of us staying sober and continuing to clean house. You know, I've done a lot of inventories and a lot of amends in sobriety. And a lot of those amends were people in AA. Mm. <laughs> a lot of those resentments. Yeah. Just because, you know, they're, they're drunks, just like me. I see my character defects on other people. And I don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have to go, oh, wait a minute. How many fingers are pointing back at me when I point at you? And yeah, so we've we've we are special, you know. As individuals, we, we can't be special when we come to AA. We need to be one up. We need to join the pack. But outside of the pack, we are special, man. We have a spiritual program that works, and to my delight. I don't have to have a name, a face, a dogma, a doctrine for my higher power to work. I just need surrender. That's the key. Knowing the, knowing the right name for God, the right book for God, these are valuable things in people's spiritual experience. But my experience with them is I, as kind of been the opposite. The, 
the, the spiritual path that I've been on has, has led me to a higher power that's too big for a name. It's too big for a dogma. My Christian friends don't understand it. My Christian family doesn't get it. And I don't expect them to anymore. They have a spiritual program that works for them, and I have one that works for me. Mm. And so, sometimes they intersect, and that's cool, but they don't have to. That's a big one. I've seen a lot of drunks not be able to get sober because they couldn't let go of their old path. Um, or they couldn't refine it because you can refine an old path of spirituality. If you, if you have a path that is only trust God and help others, you can go back to that religion or go back to that spiritual path, having learned how to clean house and be much more effective, uh, much more helpful. But in my, when someone comes, when a, when a new drunk comes to me, and says, I think I ought to go back to church. I say, what step are you on? Keep working with your sponsor. Get through this 12-step process. And then then go and do whatever. But do this first, because it's really important for us to get that foundation. And the book, you know, Bill talked about it. You know, Many of us return to the religion of our, you know, our origins, our spiritual origins. And we find a, a way to be helpful. And I've done that. Um, but I think there's two, only two reasons for an alcoholic who's been around for a while and has a spiritual program that's working. And you don't need to go to church unless you're, you want to improve on your prayer and meditation or you want to improve on your helping others. Those are the two reasons, <laughs> mm. I think. An alcoholic should go back to his religions to be helpful and to continue to expand the life of prayer meditation. My final thought, my final thought is I have used, I've utilized the Catholic church to learn how to meditate. Uh, I didn't grow up Catholic, but I have become someone who's gone to monasteries many, many times. Or retreats. I've learned how to be silent. I've learned how to sit quietly for 20 minutes at a time. So I, I, I just wanted to finish up with the, the church, uh, even though I said what I said. I, I, I mean, I've benefited from it, and I'm grateful for the path people have walked. Spiritual people have walked before me, mm. no matter what what it looks like. Nice. My pleasure, man. What a, what a gift to tell my story. And thanks for being a part of my life. Hey, I love you, Dan. Love you too, Alfredo. I really appreciate you uh, sharing your story with, uh, with the show, the podcast. And, man, it was awesome. So Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dan, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us. And thank you, listeners, for checking us out another week. You can find more of our episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, even iHeartRadio, wherever you like to check out your podcast. Just look for Recovery Edge Podcast. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.